Section 5 of A Popular History of France, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Popular History of France from the Earliest Times, Volume 4, by Francois Guizot. Translated by Robert Black. Chapter 28. Francis I and Charles V, Part 5. After the diplomatic stipulations were concluded, the royal meeting was prolonged for sixteen days, which were employed in tourneys, jousts, and all manner of festivals. The personal communication of the two kings was regulated with all the precautions of official mistrust and restraint, and when the King of England went to Ardres to see the Queen of France, the King of France had to go to Guines to see the Queen of England, for the two kings were hostages for one another. The King of France, who was not a suspicious man, says Florange, was mighty vexed at there being so little confidence in one another. He got up one morning very early, which is not his habit, took two gentlemen and a page, the first three he could find, mounted his horse, and went to visit the King of England at the castle of Guin. When he came on to the castle bridge, all the English were mightily astonished. As he rode amongst them, the King gaily called upon them to surrender to him, and asked him the way to the chamber of the King, his brother. The which was pointed out to him by the governor of Guin, who said to him, sir he is not awake but king francis passed on all the same went up to the said chamber knocked at the door awoke the king of england and walked in never was man more dumbfounded than king henry who said to king francis brother you have done me a better turn than ever man did to another and you show me the great trust i ought to have in you i yield myself your prisoner from this moment and i proffer you my parole he undid from his neck a collar worth fifteen thousand angels and begged the king of France to take it and wear it that very day for his prisoner's sake. And, lo, the king, who wished to do him the same turn, had brought with him a bracelet which was worth more than thirty thousand angels, and begged him to wear it for his sake, which thing he did, and the king of France put what had been given him on his neck. Thereupon the king of England was minded to get up, and the king of France said that he should have no other chamber attendant but himself, and he warmed his shirt and handed to him when he was up. The king of France made up his mind to go back, notwithstanding that the king of England would have kept him to dinner. But inasmuch as there was to be jousting after dinner, he mounted his horse and went back to Ardres. He met many a good folk who were coming to meet him, amongst the rest L'Aventureux, a name given to Florange himself, who said to him, My dear master, you are mad to have done what you have done. I am very glad to see you back here, and devil take him who counselled you. Whereupon the king said that never a soul had counselled him, and that he knew well there was not a soul in his kingdom who would have so counselled him. And then he began to tell what he had done at the said Guin, and so returned, conversing, to Ardres, for it was not far. Then began the jousts, which lasted a week, and were wondrous fine, both afoot and a horseback. After all these pastimes the King of England and the King of France retired to a pavilion, where they drank together. And there the King of England took the King of France by the collar, and said to him, Brother, I should like to wrestle with you, and gave him a feint or two, and the king of France, who is a mighty good wrestler, gave him a turn and threw him on the ground. And the king of England would have had yet another trial, but all that was broken off, and it was time to go to supper. After this they had yet three or four jousts and banquets, and then they took leave of one another, on the 24th of June, 1520, with the greatest possible peace between the princes and princesses. That done, the king of England returned to Guin, and the king of France to France, and it was not without giving great gifts at parting to one another. 
Having left the field of cloth of gold for Amboise, his favorite residence, Francis I discovered that Henry the Eighth, instead of returning direct to England, had gone on the 10th of July to Gravelines, in Flanders, to pay a visit to Charles V, who had afterwards accompanied him to Calais. The two sovereigns had spent three days there, and Charles V, on separating from the King of England, had commissioned him to regulate, as arbiter, all differences that might arise between himself and the King of France. Assuredly, nothing was less calculated to inspire Francis I with confidence in the results of his meeting with Henry VIII, and of their mutual courtesies. Though he desired to avoid the appearance of taking the initiative in war, he sought every occasion and pretext for recommencing it, and it was not long before he found them in the Low Countries, in Navarre, and in Italy. A trial was made of Henry VIII's meditation and of a conference at Calais, and a discussion was raised touching the legitimate nature of the protection afforded by the two sovereigns to their petty allies. But the real fact was that Francis I had a reverse to make up for and a passion to gratify, and the struggle recommenced in April 1521 in the Low Countries. Charles V, when he heard that the French had crossed his frontier, exclaimed, "'God be praised that I am not the first to commence the war, and that the King of France is pleased to make me greater than I am, for in a little while either I shall be a very poor emperor, or he will be a very poor King of France.' The campaign opened in the north, to the advantage of France, by the capture of Hesden. Admiral Bonnevet, who had the command on the frontier of Spain, reduced some small forts of Biscay and the fortress of Fontarabia, and Marshal de Lautrec, governor of Milanes, had orders to set out at once to go and defend it against the Spaniards and imperialists, who were concentrating for its invasion. Lautrec was but little adapted for this important commission. He had been made governor of Milanes in August 1516, to replace the constable de Bourbon, whose recall to France the queen-mother, Louise of Savoy, had desired and stimulated. Lautrec had succeeded ill in his government. He was active and brave, but he was harsh, haughty, jealous, imperious, and grasping, and he had embroiled himself with most of the Milanese lords, amongst others with the veteran G. G. Trivulzio, who under Charles the Eighth and Louis the Twelfth had done France such great service in Italy. Trivulzio, offensively treated at Milan, and subjected to accusations at Paris, went, at eighty-two years of age, to France to justify himself before the king. But Francis I gave him a cold reception, barely spoke to him, and declined his explanations. One day, at Arpajon, Trivulzio heard that the king was to pass on horseback through the town, and being unable to walk, had himself carried, ill as he was, in his chair to the middle of the street. The king passed with averted head, and without replying to Trivulzio, who cried, "'Sir, ah, sir, just one moment's audience!' Trivulzio, on reaching home, took to his bed, and died there a month afterwards, on the 5th of December, 1518, having himself dictated this epitaph, which was inscribed on his tomb at Milan, J. J. Trivulzio, son of Anthony, J. J. Trivulzio, son of Anthony, he who never rested, rests. Hush! Francis I, when informed that Trivulzio was near his end, regretted, it is said, his harsh indifference, and sent to express him his regret. But it is too late, answered the dying man. In the king's harshness there was something more than ungrateful forgetfulness of a veteran's ancient services. While Francis was bringing about a renewal of war in Italy, in the Low Countries, and on the frontier of Spain, he was abandoning himself at Paris, Tours, Amboise, and wherever he resided, to all the diversions and all the enticements of the brilliant court which was gathered around him. Extravagance and pleasure were a passion with him. There has been talk, says Brantome, of the great outlay, magnificence, sumptuousness, 
and halls of Lucullus, but in naught of that kind did he ever come near our king. And what is most rare is, that in a village, in the forest, at the meet, there was the same service as there would have been in Paris. One day, when the king was expecting the Emperor Charles to dinner, word came that he had slipped away, and had gone to give a sudden surprise to the constable, just as he was sitting down to table, and to dine with him and all his comrades comrade-wise. He found this table as well furnished and supplied, and laden with victuals, as well cooked and flavoured, as if they had been in Paris or some other good city of France, whereat the emperor was so mightily astonished that he said there was no such grandeur in the world as that of such a king of France. In respect of ladies, of a surety it must be confessed that before the time of King Francis they set foot in and frequented the court but little, and in but small numbers. It is true that Queen Anne of Brittany began to make her ladies' court larger than it had been under former queens, and without her, the king her husband, Louis the Twelfth, would have taken no trouble about it. But Francis I, coming to reign, and considering that the whole grace of the court was the ladies, was pleased to fill it up with them more than had been the ancient custom. Since in truth a court without ladies is a garden without any pretty flowers, and more resembled a satrap's or a Turk's court than that of a great Christian king. As for me, I hold that there never was anything better introduced than the ladies' court. Full often have I seen our kings go to camp, or town, or elsewhither, remain there and divert themselves for some days, and yet take thither no ladies. But we were so bewildered, so lost, so moped, that for the week we spent away from them and their pretty eyes it appeared to us a year, and always a wishing, when shall we be at the court? Not full often, calling that the court where the king was, but that where the queen and ladies were. From Ove de Brantome, edition of the Société de l'Histoire de France, pages 120 to 129. Now, when so many fair ladies are met together in a life of sumptuousness and gaiety, a king is pretty sure to find favorites, and royal favorites rarely content themselves with pleasing the king. They desire to make their favor serviceable to their family and their friends. Francis I had made choice one Francis de Foy, Countess of Chateaubriand, beautiful, ambitious, dexterous, haughty, readily venturing upon rivalry with even the powerful Queen Mother. She had three brothers. Lautrec was one of the three, and she supported him in all his pretensions and all his trials of fortune. When he set out to go and take the command in Italy, he found himself at the head of an army numerous indeed, but badly equipped, badly paid, and at grips with Prosper Colonna, the most able amongst the chiefs of the coalition formed at this juncture between Charles V and Pope Leo X against the French. Lautrec did not succeed in preventing Milan from falling into the hands of the imperialists, and after an uncertain campaign of some months' duration, he lost at La Bicaccia, near Monza, on the 27th of April, 1522, a battle which left in the power of Francis I in Lombardy only the citadels of Milan, Cremona, and Novara. At the news of these reverses, Francis I repaired to Lyon, to consult as to the means of applying a remedy. Lautrec also arrived there. The king, says Martin du Bellay, gave him a bad reception, as the man by whose fault he considered he had lost his duchy of Milan, and would not speak to him. Lautrec found an occasion for addressing the king, and complained vehemently of the black looks he gave him. "'And good reason,' said the king, "'when you have lost me such a heritage as the duchy of Milan.' "'Twas not I who lost it,' answered Lautrec. "'Twas your majesty yourself. I several times warned you that, if I were not helped with money, there was no means of retaining the men-at-arms, who had served for eighteen months without a penny, 
and likewise the Swiss, who forced me to fight at a disadvantage, which they would never have done if they had received their pay. I sent you four hundred thousand crowns when you asked for them. I received the letters in which your majesty notified me of this money, but the money never. The king sent at once for the superintendent-general of finance, James de Boon, baron of Saint-Blanquet, who acknowledged having received orders on the subject from the king, but added that, at the very moment when he was about to send this sum to the army, the queen-mother had come and asked him for it, and had received it from him, whereof he was ready to make oath. Francis I entered his mother's room in a rage, reproaching her with having been the cause of losing him his duchy of Milan. "'I should never have believed it of you,' he said, "'that you would have kept money ordered for the service of my army.' The queen-mother, somewhat confused at first, excused herself by saying, that those were monies proceeding from the savings which she had made out of her revenues, and had given to the superintendent to take care of. Saint-Blanquet stuck to what he had said. The question became a personal one between the queen-mother and the minister, and commissioners were appointed to decide the difference. Chancellor Duprat was the docile servant of Louise of Savoy and the enemy of Saint-Blanquet, whose authority in financial matters he envied, and he chose the commissioners from amongst the mushroom councillors he had lately brought into Parliament. The question between the queen-mother and the superintendent led to nothing less than the trial of Saint-Blanquet. The trial lasted five years, and on the ninth of April, 1527, a decree of Parliament condemned Saint-Blanquet to the punishment of death and confiscation of all his property, not for the particular matter which had been the origin of the quarrel, but, as attained and convicted of larcenies, falsifications, abuses, malversations, and maladministration of the king's finances, without prejudice as to the debt claimed by the said my lady, the mother of the king. Saint-Blanquet, accordingly, was hanged on the gibbet of Montfaucon on the 12th of August. In spite of certain ambiguities which arose touching some acts of his administration, and some details of his trial, public feeling was generally and very strongly in his favor. He was an old and faithful servant of the crown, and Francis I had, for a long time, called him his father. He was evidently the victim of the queen-mother's greed and vengeance. The firmness of his behavior, at the time of his execution, became a popular theme in the verses of Clement Marot. When Maillard, officer of hell, escorted to Montfaucon Saint-Blanquet, doomed to die, which, to your thinking, of the twain supported the better behavior, I will make reply, my art was like the man to death proceeding, and Saint-Blanquet so stout and ancient looked, it seemed forsooth as if himself were leading Lieutenant Maillard to the gallows booked. It is said that, at the very moment of execution, Saint-Blanquet, waiting on the scaffold for at least a commutation of the penalty, said, Had I served God as I have served the king, he would not have made me wait so long. Nearly two centuries later, in 1683, a more celebrated minister than Saint-Blanquet, Colbert, in fact, as he was dying tranquilly in his bed, after having for twenty years served Louis the Fourteenth, and in that service made the fortune of his family as well as his own, also said, Had I done for God what I have done for yonder man, I had been twice saved. Now I know not what will become of me. A striking similarity in language and sentiment, in spite of such different ends, between two great counsellors of kings, both devoted during their lives to the affairs of the world, and both passing at their last hour this severe judgment as Christians, upon the masters of the world, and upon themselves. About the same time the government of Francis was involved, through his mother's evil passions, 
not in an act more morally shameful, but in an event more politically serious than the execution of Saint-Blanquet. There remained in France one puissant prince, the last of the feudal semi-sovereigns, and the head of that only one of the provincial dynasties sprung from the dynasty of the Capetians, which still held its own against the kingly house. There were no more dukes of Burgundy, dukes of Anjou, counts of Provence, and dukes of Brittany. By good fortune or by dexterous management the French kingship had absorbed all those kindred and rival states. Charles II, Duke of Bourbon, alone was invested with such power and independence as could lead to rivalry. He was in possession of Bourbonnais, of Auvergne, of La Force, of La Marche, of Beaujolais, and a large number of domains and castles in different parts of France. Throughout all these possessions he levied taxes and troops, convoked the local estates, appointed the officers of justice, and regulated almost the whole social organism. He was born on the 10th of February, 1490, four years before Francis I. He was the head of the younger branch of the bourbon Montpensier, and he had married, in 1515, his cousin, Suzanne of Bourbon, only daughter of Peter II, head of the elder branch, and Anne of France, the able and for a long while puissant daughter of Louis XI. Louis Twelfth had taken great interest in this marriage, and it had been stipulated in the contract that the pair should make a mutual and general settlement of all their possessions in favor of the survivor. Thus the young duke, Charles, had united all the possessions of the House of Bourbon, and he held at Moulins a brilliant princely court, of which he was himself the most brilliant ornament. Having been trained from his boyhood in all chivalrous qualities, he was an accomplished knight before becoming a tried warrior, and he no sooner appeared upon the field of battle than he won renown, not only as a valiant prince, but as an eminent soldier. In 1509, at the Battle of Agnadello, under the eye of Louis Twelfth himself, he showed that he was a worthy pupil of La Tremoille, of La Palice, and of Bayard, and in 1512, at that of Ravenna, his reputation was already so well established in the army that, when Gaston de Foy was killed, they clamored for Duke Charles of Bourbon, then twenty-two years old, as his successor. Louis Twelfth gave him full credit for his bravery and his warlike abilities, but the young prince's unexpansive character, haughty independence, and momentary flashes of audacity caused the veteran king some disquietude. "'I wish,' said he, "'he had a more open, more gay, less taciturn spirit. Stagnant water affrights me.'" In 1516, the year after Louis XII's death, Andrew Trevisani, Venetian ambassador at Milan, wrote to the Venetian council, this Duke of Bourbon handles a sword most gallantly and successfully. He fears God. He is devout, humane, and very generous. He has a revenue of one hundred and twenty thousand crowns, twenty thousand from his mother-in-law, Anne of France, and two thousand a month as constable of France, and according to what is said by Monsieur de Longueville, governor of Paris, he might dispose of half the king's army for any enterprise he pleased, even if the king did not please. End of section 5 Read by Professor Heather and By. For more free audiobooks or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.